lift up the people who have no idea about the food bank, who have no idea about you, who have no idea about the church or this amazing dynamic couple. And it is on their behalf we commission this, that they would be fed, that mothers can feed children, that husbands know their family are fed. But Father, for the ones that you have already drawing towards us that are going to find more than food, are going to found your love and find community and generational transformation. We give you all the glory, the honor and the praise to be working alongside the creator of heaven and earth. And as a church, we thank you for this ministry. We thank you for the funds to pay for it. We thank you for the passion in the church for the poor. And we ask that you would bless this and that you would see people drawn unto you. And we will see people baptized in this spot in the years to come who will testify of the power of God. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and gave a cheer. Amen. Wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, a little later than we'd want to be, but that's okay. So, um, Alicia is preaching this morning, which I am personally really excited about. Come up, you come, Alicia. I, I stand here today and I prophesy, and I don't normally do this, and this isn't purely based on kind of like God just revealing something to me, but I know this girl and I believe that God has given her a preaching gift that is going to define her life. Okay? That's, that, I, I genuinely, I genuinely do think that, um, because I've heard her speak and at a young age of whatever, 23, 24, you know, she has got the word of God in her and she's got an ability to communicate and preach God's word with a passion. And so, Father, we just pray for Alicia right now. Father, it's her first opportunity to speak to us as a church. Father, that you would, um, yeah, that you would first of all relax her, that you would allow your spirit to flow through her. And that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you want to say to us as we focus our eyes on what you did on the cross. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's only the kids' workers we have to think of, that's all. Yeah. We're fine for hours. Okay. Great. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you. What a privilege and honor. Um, so this is the first time I've ever preached with a PowerPoint. So thank you, Light Church, for dragging me into the 21st century. I did refuse the headset, though, because baby steps will get there eventually. Um, but as Ed started off the series last week, we're focusing on Jesus's seven phrases that he spoke from the cross. We're approaching Easter. It feels like ages away, but it won't be that long. And um, what better way to prepare our hearts for that time than to look at our Savior on the cross and the words that he gave to us. Anyone's last words are important, but even more so. I mean, they're not his last words because he rose again. But, <laughs> but anyone's words before they die are important. And how much more so our King and Saviour as he hung on the cross. So the passage we're going to be focusing on today is Luke 23, verses 39 to 43, which says, One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus hurled insults at him. 
So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God even when you're dying? We deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man has not done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, I, when I saw that it was the cross that was the first preach that I was going to get to do here, I was like, oh no, <laughs> simply because I can never talk about the cross without crying. So bear with me, but hopefully I'll be fine. Um, but I love Jesus, as we all do. I love the cross. And um, so I want to just, if we achieve nothing else today, then to stand in wonder at our Savior and what he's done, then I think we will all leave saying we've had a successful morning. Um, so before we dive into the phrase that we're going to focus on, I just want to rewind in the story a bit um, to when Jesus was actually arrested. So we're going to look at John 18, verses 4 to 6. And it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, the context of this is obviously they are, they're in the garden and Judas has brought soldiers and chief priests um, to arrest Jesus and to take him um, away to the cross. And so just, this is just context here. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone comes up to me and it's like I'm looking for Alicia Chapman and I go, oh, hi, that's me, or even I am she, <laughs> then no one draws back and falls to the ground unless they happen to trip over something at the same time. <laughs> but, but my point is, if Jesus declaring who he is causes men to draw back and fall in fear and awe, then imagine the power that he could have unleashed if he revealed all of his majesty and all of his might. And yet he restrained, he came in humility and meekness. And so when we dive into the cross and when we look at these words that Jesus spoke from the cross, I just wanted to us to do so looking at what was fueling those words And if Jesus caused, just by saying, I am he, if Jesus caused people to fall at his feet and yet he surrendered to the cross, it wasn't nails that kept him there. No one took his life from him. He's the son of God. It was love that held him there. And so with every breath and with every nail and with every words that he spoke, it was a full submission to the to the will of his father. And it was ferocious, tenacious love for you, for me, for the mockers that were surrounding him and for the two criminals that he ends up hung between. And so when we, when we dive into this word, let's not do it without realizing he could have changed the whole thing, but he chose not to. He stayed there. Love kept him there. And so um, that brings us to what we're going to actually look at. Um, the king of kings hanging between two criminals on a cross with every breath surrendering to his father's will and saying yes, simply because he loved us. So what can we learn from this love-fueled interaction that we see in the passage, Luke? Um, The first thing, so we've got five points. 
And we're going to go through them. And they're all, firstly, truths that the dying thief learned. So they're truths we know to get saved. But more than that, I believe that they're challenges to us who already do have given our life to Jesus um, that can actually change the way we live. Um, so the first one, I will face God when I die. Cheerful start. <laughs> um, so here we see in Luke, the, the feet, it's one criminal rebuking the other criminal. Don't you fear God even when you're dying? So he's basically saying, you're about to be stood face to face with the living God, and you're still not letting that fact change your behavior. You've lived your whole life doing whatever you wanted, and yet your moments before going to stand before him, and it's still not hit your heart, whereas the other criminal, it clearly was. Something was happening. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So that puts us all on a level playing field. There's one thing guaranteed in life, and that's that we're going to die. Second thing guaranteed in life, because the Bible says so, is that we're going to stand before God. And the words that come out of his mouth in that moment define our forever and give shape to what that looks like. And so, yes, we need to know to get saved that one day I'm going to stand before God, and we need to let the fear of the Lord provoke a decision in our heart but I honestly believe that, that that truth should not only ch- affect that one decision that we make, it should actually affect every single decision moving forwards from that point. And, and why do I think that? Um, I think that because of Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So we have the revelation that we know we're going to stand before God when we die. And and now we have a choice to, are we going to stand before a stranger or are we going to stand before a friend? And so just as the fact that the thief was going to stand before God in just a moment, changed his entire life. I want that to change my life every minute and every moment. I want to get before God one day and know that I'm standing before a friend and that I've taken this amazing privilege. We have this privilege of getting to choose him when we can't see him. And I don't want to miss a moment of that because in the blink of an eye, I'm going to be stood face to face and it will be my choices along the way that will determine determine that conversation. So point one, I'm going to uh, stand, I'm going to face God when I die. Point two, that the thief understands. I have sinned against God. We can tell that he gets this because he says, we deserve to die for our deeds. And in that, there's a recognition that because he is wrong with God, there is a penalty and there's a payment. It's a recognition that I'm a sinner and that has consequences. James 2 verse 10 says, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. We know Romans 3.23 really well. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So basically the revelation that is hitting the criminal's heart here is God is perfect. I am far from that. And for me to dwell in his presence, there has to be an intervention. 
So yes, we need to know that to get saved, but how can that change my life now? I think there is a place we can be that we stay in a place of humility, acknowledging our weakness. Now, I'm not talking about the place where we get so caught up in our brokenness and weakness that we forget to look to Jesus to help us. But I'm talking of a, a place where if, we, if the cross is ever to produce the fruit of gratitude and humility in my life, I have to understand the gravity of what actually happened. And for me to understand the gravity of what actually happened, I have to understand the gravity of my weakness and my sin. And so I want to get to a place. I remember the first moment that the reality of the cross hit me. And I'm not joking. I couldn't stop crying for three weeks. And I kept saying to people, I don't know why I'm crying because I'm not sad. (laughs) It's a good thing. And they just kept saying, you've discovered mercy. You know what it is to have mercy extended to you. And I just have found that there is nothing that grips a heart like undeserved mercy and unreserved kindness. And for us to fully get that and fall in love with the man giving us that, we have to understand the weight of what we've done. So, point number three. I can choose to retreat in shame or approach in confidence. We know this, that the criminal has got this because he says, Jesus, remember me. See, even... Though the the thief is on his was a deathbed, but he didn't quite have that experience. He is moments away from death. There is something that he's seen in the character of Jesus that makes him choose him. He puts his trust in the character of the person on the cross next to him. I cannot wait one day to get to heaven and ask him. What on earth did you see about him that in a moment changed your entire life forever? Because he didn't have what we had. He didn't have all of the gospels to read. He didn't have, he didn't maybe know the full weight of what was taking place right next to him. And yet something in the character and the kindness in the eyes of Jesus right next to him caused him to say, I am a mess. (laughs) My whole life has been me doing wrong things. And yet there's something about this man that I know if I say, Jesus, remember me and trust in his character, things are going to change. Though his circumstances told him that he was too far gone or he was too late. I mean, he was literally about to die. The kindness in Jesus' eyes told a different story. He somehow knew that Jesus would not call him by his sin, that Jesus would see past the brokenness and that with sincere repentance in his heart, with a heart that sincerely said, Jesus, I just want to be with you, that that is all that it would take. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How can this change the way I live now? I mean, personally, I obviously haven't done anything wrong at all since the day I gave my life to Jesus. But if you are all not like me, I'm, I'm kidding, I, chief of sinners and all of that, um, then I don't think this truth can ever, ever get old. There are, you know, when we slip up, when we mess up, when we, just as the criminal would have been feeling, are feeling like we are too far gone, like we've made too many mistakes, like it's too late. 
the kindness in Jesus' eyes tells a different story. And we have a choice that we can either run away from him in shame or right in the moment of our brokenness and weakness, run to him, trusting that he is the answer, that he is enough and that his grace is sufficient. And I think there are so many times that Christians, we put ourselves on the naughty step. It's like, oh, I've not messed up. I've messed up. So God won't want to speak to me for a while. So I'm going to spend two months wallowing and feeling sorry for myself. When Jesus is just not like that, when his character is so different to what we expect. And if we just, the moment that we turn and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and I want to change, and I want you, then it's as if it never even happened. And we can actually, Jesus can actually take that place of weakness and brokenness and use it as a springboard into his heart and his character so that we would come out stronger than before. Um, the, uh, I just love the story of the prodigal son, which is a great picture of that. Um, so obviously we know the story. The son has taken the inheritance of his father. He's gone away and he squandered it. But it says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What an amazing story about my life, about potentially your life, that I would take the goodness of God, I would squander it and mess up, but yet the moment I turn back to him, expecting him to maybe just let me have a lower position, the heart of the father comes forth and he not only welcomes me in, he doesn't wait till I'm fully back, he runs out to meet me. It says, with a ring and a robe, which symbols inheritance, he brings me right back in to the highest place. And so I think that is what the the criminal on the cross next to Jesus was experiencing in that moment. We never have to second guess our, our God's emotions towards us. We just have to look at the cross. We just have to remember that day. If the one who loved us unto death saw us worthy to do that, then we can trust him to love us now in whatever situation we are going through. And so, yeah, we can choose to retreat in shame or approach in confidence. Number four, I love this one, only God's grace can save us. We're going to explore the same phrase. We know that the thief had that revelation because he says, once again, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief had the revelation that there was absolutely nothing he could do to save himself. And so he looks to Jesus And I think that for him was probably way more of a reality because there was physically nothing he could do to save himself. For us, that is way more of a heart thing to realize, actually, there is nothing I can do to earn this. It is fully and only God's grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. And even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast." 
So yes, we have to know this to be saved, that our salvation is not what we can do. It's solely what God has done for us. It's receiving what we don't deserve. I like to think, it's way more complex than this, I know, but for my simple brain, I like to think of mercy as escaping. No, grace has been given what I don't deserve and mercy as not being given what I deserve. (laughs) So if grace is to receive what I haven't deserved, it is a gift. It is, there is nothing I can do to earn it. Salvation is a gift that is only from God. So how can this change the way that we live now? I think simply we can stop trying to earn his love, stop trying to strive for something that he has given us freely, or I like the way someone said it to me, stop trying to get into a room that you are already in. Realize the gifts that you've been given and tuck in. (laughs) Enjoy them. John 17, um, I don't have it up there, but in John 17, Jesus says this incredible tiny phrase. He says that the Father loves us in the same way that the Father loves him. Now, do you know how incredible that is? Jesus, who has never done anything wrong, that's kind of the next point, but never, ever, ever done anything wrong. He's the Son of God, is God, and yet the Father loves me and you the same way as that. And he will never love us any more than he does right in this moment or any less because he is love. And when he gives himself, he gives the fullness of who he is. So if we could stop trying to earning earn more love and just realize what we have, we would live extremely differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, a quick story, then I have one more point and we'll be done. Um, so... I, have a, I had a friend who was doing a school project, and in the project, he um, was basically talking to people of different faiths about their views on Christianity. And one particular story really hit me. So he was spo- speaking to a, le- a local leader of another major world re- religion and kind of talking through Christianity. And this leader looked at him and said, you know... What you think is my biggest problem with your faith is actually not. And my friend was like, what, what do you mean? And he was like, you think that the biggest problem I have with Christianity is the divinity of Jesus. That I don't think he's the son of God. That I don't think he is who he says he is. He's like, but I have a bigger problem than that. He's like, the thing that bothers me most about your faith is grace. The fact that on their deathbed, someone who has done nothing but evil their entire life can sincerely and genuinely turn to your God and the next moment they will be with him fully forgiven. I cannot accept that grace. And what struck me was, oh my gosh, he gets it. Like He gets it more than we get it. If we got that, what that guy has so clearly expressed, we would live so differently If we got the fact that we can, the moment we sincerely turn in repentance to God, he will extend grace towards us, we wouldn't then use grace to justify our sin. We'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to use this gift and let it empower me to overcome sin. Let it empower me to actually change my life um, because that's what it's meant to do. Number five, Jesus is more than a man. And there are multiple phrases in this passage that we're looking at that tell us that. Um, The first one is, this man has not done anything wrong. This can be said about no one else. Can you imagine being Jesus' sibling 
Like he had brothers. <laughs> How annoying when he will not do anything wrong. It's like, mom, Jesus punched me. No, he didn't. How do you know? Because he just, God, he doesn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Nothing. Not as a toddler, not as a teenager. I think we sometimes, because the, the gospels don't give us the in-depth of Jesus' childhood, I think we forget that, you know, toddlers, we know how to sin from like the moment we're born. <laughs> it comes really naturally, but not for Jesus. Throughout his life, sinless. Um, God made him, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4, I love it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's why it had to be Jesus on the cross, because he is the only one that is perfect in every way. So he's done nothing wrong. And then we know that Jesus is more than man, more than a man, because in the passage, the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And so there was something that the thief suddenly understood about Jesus, that where Jesus was going, it was his kingdom. And he had the power to get him there, too. Um, Colossians 1 just sums up what I'm trying to say way better than I could say it. So we'll read it. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created, whether through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus, the fullness of God in human frame, hanging between two criminals. And lastly, we know that Jesus is more than a man through his words. I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, no one else could make that promise. And I love it because the very moment that death seemed to be triumphing, Our Savior hung on a cross about to die was in fact the very moment that it was defeated forever. And we see the hope flooding from his mouth of, you have no idea what is actually happening here, my friend. But because of what I'm doing, in a moment, you and me will be together forever. What kindness of the Father to give Jesus a first fruit right there and then. That in that very moment, death was no longer had its power because of what was taking place. And the guy next to him was the, the, the kiss to his heart of, this is why I'm here Again, him saying yes to the nails, him saying yes to staying on the cross. So how can this change the way we live now? How do you sum it up? It changes everything. Um, I think firstly, for us to never lose the wonder of the cross and who he is, to make Jesus our highest pleasure, our greatest treasure. And then when we look at, assuredly, I say to you, to take him at his word, 
we never need assurance um, because he cannot lie. He cannot violate his character. And he, if he is truth, which we know he is, then every word that proceeds from his mouth, we can trust in 100%. So when we need assurance, whether it's some of us may know, need to know that we are saved. If he said it, <laughs> then you are. And some of us might be clinging on to promises that we believe he said, and we just need to know that he is not a man that he should lie. And that because he's more than a man, those words carry weight and life and power, and we can hold on to them. Emotions lie. God cannot, he cannot violate his character. So, I will face God when I die. I have sinned against him. I can choose to retreat in shame or approach in confidence. Only God's grace can save me. Or Jesus is more than a man. Let's let that truth change us today and every day. Let's just pray and then five past, we're done. (laughs) Jesus, we stand amazed at who you are. Lord, there is no one like you in heaven and all of earth, in power, in splendor, in meekness, in humility, in kindness, in mercy and grace and compassion. Lord, you have won our hearts. God, and we will never tire of hearing the simple gospel. That because of who you were, stepping into your own creation and surrendering fully to your Father's will because of love for us, Lord, let it be replayed over and over and over again. Lord, these next few weeks as we approach into Easter, don't let the gospel become a familiar story to us. Let it transform us. Lord, we believe that your gospel and your word is power to save, to transform, to deliver, to break chains. God, we look at the cross and we stand in wonder and amazement and we say you are worthy of adoration and worship and praise. Lord, we lift you high. We invite you to speak whatever you would speak to us. And above all else, we say that we love you and we respond to who you are. The only way we know how, by pouring out our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.